The scripture reading today will be selected passages from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. Verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. For the last month or so, we've been looking at the life of Moses in the book of Exodus. And um, the book of Exodus, it's fundamental in our understanding of words like sin and salvation. They're not words that are commonly used today uh, in, our, in our lives uh, and so this book really teaches us about salvation. Now, salvation is, is not, this understanding of salvation is really not just about Israel crossing the Red Sea. God saves Israel. Remember, God saved the Israelites first, and then he gave them the law. Why did God do that? Why wasn't it the other way around? God, God gives us the law and then saves us. He actually saves us first, and then he gives the people the law. And the reason why is because laws define a nation. And herein we see God's, in, his intent in forming a people of his own. God's making the Israelites his people, his country, his nation. And at the heart, so the law says, if you really want to thrive, if you really want to flourish in life, if you want to increase your options, if you really want to increase your potential and your freedom and your joy, God has to be the ultimate priority. He has to be central in all of your decisions, more important than anything you have in your life. Now, we live in a time where we say we believe in God, we're spiritual people, but God is not really intimately connected in the relevant things in our lives, very dissociated. And as a result, we say, you know, God's presence, he makes me feel good because he's really there. I know he's there to meet my needs. I do my part, he does his part. This passage blows that thought out of the water, out of the water. God says, verses 1 to 6, I am a jealous God. What he's saying is, I need to be central in your life. And there's three things as a result that we're going to learn today about the law. If you've never heard any teachings about the law, I'm sure we've all heard teachings about the law. Why we have it, what it is, how do we obey it? Why we have it, what it is, and how do we obey it? First, why do we have the law? 
And it's because precisely what I said just recently, what I just mentioned, because of the jealousy of God. Right here, right here in the Ten Commandments, not some obscure place in the Bible, not some place that you've never read before in your Bibles, but right here in the central aspect, the central part of the Bible, we see uh, verses 1 to 4. God says, have no other gods before you. Don't make for yourself an idol. Why? He says, he says I must be first. Why? Verse 5, for I the Lord your God and a jealous God. He says that right in the central aspect, one of the central parts of the Bible. Everywhere else in the Bible, we learn that jealousy is a sin. We just finished uh, a series on 1 Samuel, the life of David, and we, what do we see there? King Saul, he's angry at God for rejecting him. He's angry at the people. He's angry at David. He's jealous because David has God's favor. David is popular. He envied David's attractiveness. It corroded his soul. Why? Because this kind of jealousy is about you. It's about your ego. It's about your pride. Now, how do you know? It's because of this. When you lose something that you really love, and, you know, if anger and pride starts to set in, you end up attacking the very person whose love you lost because it's about you. Because it's about you. How is God's jealousy different than our human jealousy. In 2 Corinthians, New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he's writing to the Corinthians, the people of Corinth, the church in Corinth, whose lives are very, very worldly. And they're a very cosmopolitan city in their day, in those ancient times. And lives are very worldly. And this is what Paul says. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. In other words, he says, I promised you to one husband, to Jesus Christ, but I'm afraid that your minds have somehow led you astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And he starts to chastise them. And he says, even though you know the gospel, you're so easily won to other things. Now, if you actually read that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I believe it, around chapter 11, he, you know, what you see here, Paul's not sweet in that passage. He's fuming in this passage. He's sarcastic in this passage. He's strong in this passage. He's confronting them. He's angry. He's practically screaming at them. Now, how is this godly? How is this good? And it's because this anger is not about himself. This anger is not about his ego. This anger is actually about his love. Paul's love for them is an angered love. He's representing God's angry, jealous love for his people. He's definitely angry. He says, what are you doing? Why are you going in this direction? This is not good. This is going to lead you in a bad place. But because his love is an angered love, and because anger is out of love, it's an angered love, you know, um, his love remains unchanged. You see his love through all of it. Now, I had to look everywhere for this because I really had to kind of dissociate human jealousy from godly jealousy. Is there really such a thing? And no one says it better than Tim Keller. Dr. Tim Keller, he says this, and I couldn't find a better, a better summarize than anyone else. Godly jealousy is an angered love that stays love, that remains love. That's a great way of saying that. You know, our jealousy, what, what Tim Keller is really saying is this, our jealousy sits on an anger over losing someone because it's about us. 
you know, we get really angry because we've lost someone when it's really we've lost someone and we're really focusing and centering on ourselves. God's jealousy can be angry. God's jealousy, it can be very angry, but it's really about the very people that he's losing, the very people that he's lost. It's about losing someone because of where they're headed, not because of, of a, it's, not, it's not about him. A normal jealousy, a human jealousy, is a love for self that overtakes their love for the other person. There's no doubt that there may be love for the other person, but the love of self overtakes the love of that person or the love for that person. Uh, and as a result, you know, because of your self-centeredness, because of your desires now, you just hate the person or you hate other people because of that person. That's what happens. A godly jealousy is an angered love that stays love. You're going to do whatever it takes to bring that person back really for that person's sake, for their sake. It's what makes this God so beautiful. It's what makes our God so unique. Now, in ancient times, it's unique because in ancient times, you had multiple gods. Everybody had multiple gods. And you had to obey every one of their laws. You had to obey them all. You had to appease all the gods. You had to make sacrifices for all your gods. You had to do all this work for all your gods. It was a lot like politicking. There was a lot of politics, a lot of compromising and sacrifices, a lot of pleading and doing and manipulating and being manipulated. And God says, I am not like any of these other gods. If you're going to relate with me, if you're going to have a personal, personal relationship with me, it's going to be a lot more like marriage. You can't have a give-and-take relationship in marriage. It doesn't work. Scholars uh, across the board, social psychologists across the board will say marriages that are just based on give-and-take do not work. God says, not me. I want a love relationship with you. I don't want you to treat me the way you treat other gods. I want singularity. I want ultimate commitment. I need to be central in your life. Now, that idea was absolutely crazy back then and it's absolutely crazy to people today. But that's what it is. The reason why we have the law is because of the jealousy of God. Now, what is it? What is the law? It's got many dimensions. I'm going to share with you the dimensions. It's got a high dimension. It's, it's higher. It's more inward. It's more outward. And it's deeper than any relationship, anything you know. It's higher, more inward, more outward, and deeper than anything you know. Any relationship you have. Now, clearly, anyone sitting here could say that the Ten Commandments cannot be, it's absolutely not a list of chores. You read something like this, and everybody here knows, whether you've read it a million times or for the first time in your life, the Ten Commandments do not look like a list of chores. God is saying, by obeying the Ten Commandments, he says it very early on in the text, you become my personal treasure. I've already saved you. You can't possibly be obeying it to get saved. But now that I've saved you, now that I've brought you to, your, my, to myself, you can become my personal treasure. I become yours and you become mine. Now, how do you do that? First, the relationship is higher. God says, I must be sensual. There has to be a vertical relationship that is so intense I have to be central to your life. Verses 4 to 6, he says, you shall not make for yourself an idol in, in a form of anything. Verse 4, he says, you cannot make for yourself an idol. What does that mean? It implies first, or it actually explicitly states, that an idol can become anything in your life. Anything can be an idol. God says, if you love anything more than me, that's an idol. It's going to provoke my jealousy. That's what he's saying here. Why? Because I love you. No other idol can love you 
I love you. Take a couple. All right, a couple examples here. Imagine a couple where the wife asks the husband, you know, why do you love me? And the husband responds, well, it's pretty obvious, you see. You're incredibly beautiful. You're very pretty. You have a wonderful, you have an amazing figure. I love the way your hair smells. I love having sex with you. You're incredibly intelligent. You have a wonderful career. You make lots of money. You come from a great family. Now, if you're wise, if, any, if this woman is wise, the wife will say, well, that isn't love. None of those things are love. You don't really love me. You love me for what I do for you. That's why you love me. What you really love is sex. What you really love is a good reputation, a good pedigree. What you really love is money. Or, let's say a spouse comes up uh, to a husband and says, you know, I don't really feel loved by you. And the husband says, well, why not? Why don't you feel loved by me? And, and, and the spouse responds, the wife responds, uh, well, well, let's say the husband responds and says, how can you not feel loved by me? You have all the money in the world that, that, that you need. You have, you have more money than you need. You have all the clothes. You have fine Tiffany jewelry. You have this amazing house. You have beautiful children. You have nice cars. The spouse says, but I don't have you. Every time you come home, you check out. You put on Netflix and you just veg out. You watch sports. You just watch Golf Channel all the time. I never know what you're thinking, what's going on in your heart, what your fears. I, I don't connect with you. I never get to hear you. I never get to enjoy you. With you, I have things, but I don't have you. I want you. I want, I want to be intimate with you. I want your time. I want to be able to talk with you, really, really talk with you. I want to have a sense of honor from you, and I want to be able to honor you. Or, let's say, you know, when you see that God is faithful, and you see God's faithfulness and his tremendous love for you, but it doesn't really make you want to be faithful. You, don't, it, you kind of just say, well, yeah, it's great. It makes me feel great. But it doesn't shape you to want to be more faithful. And instead, it makes you say, well, then give me a job. Then help me to find a woman. Let me get married. That's not love. You're really provoking God's jealousy. You're provoking God's anger. Now, why? It's because he knows that that view of love will destroy you. It's going to hurt him. Yes, it grieves him. It's going to hurt him. We call God as a person, but it will destroy you. God says, I don't want you to just serve me. I don't want you to just go through the motions. What kind of life is that? I don't want you to just go to church and just do things. I want you to obey. You know, those kind of things are obeying without giving me your heart. I want you to give me your heart. I want to be your priority. I want to be central to you. That's the meaning, really, of the first three commandments. That's the first three commandments. All the other commandments really flow out of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before you. Right? But the first three commandments, that's what it is. It's that higher relationship. He wants to be central. Now, secondly, we said it's inward. There's an inward dimension. And here we're talking about image bearing, bearing God's image, reflecting God's image. Now, the law is not, this law is not just about two random people coming together, entering into this love-binding contract that we call a covenant. I mean, if you meet somebody online, you know, you meet somebody online and say, hey, let's meet at 8 o'clock at this place on Saturday night, you know, for the first time. It's like a blind date. That kind of agreement can easily be broken. If you don't feel like it, you just email that person back. You don't even know what that person looks like in some cases. You say, you know what? I can't make it. 
You don't have to tell them why. You don't have to give them an excuse. You don't have to explain yourself. You can break that anytime. But what if this agreement is with your creator who wants to be your priority and says, I need to be sensual for your sake? The Bible says the law teaches us about the character of its creator. And because we're created in, in his image, the Bible says that we are created in God's image. That means that that law teaches us about our design, how we were created to be. There's a story about uh, Miele. It's a German company, a, a German product company. Miele is known for fascinating designs combined with innovative uh, engineering. And so not only do you have in this product, I'm not here to, as a spokesman for Miele, I mean, but, you know, not only do you have this, beautiful, uh, uh, this beautifully designed product, wash, washing machines, laundry machines, you know, dishwashers, but uh, they're engineered to work very efficiently and very, very well, probably the best in the world, that's what they say. Um, and there's, this, uh, there's a story about Miele. Um, when they came out with their laundry machine, their washing machine, the largest number of complaints that they received came from the United States. And the reason why was because Miele, the way they designed their laundry machines, their washing machines, um, they, they're very, very efficient with the way they use water. Very efficient. So you don't even see the water squirting around in there. American laundry machines, washing machines, water splashing everywhere, detergent. They actually point it to the window so when you look into it, you see everything can take effect. Right? It's kind of like when you wash your hair, there's good soap, there's good you know, shampoo, there's bad shampoo. It turns out that the, I used to think that good shampoos were the ones that give you lots of lather, only to know that it dries out your skin in the wintertime, right? It's the good stuff, it actually has no lather. A lot of times it has no lather. I, I have a hard time conceiving that, understanding that, right? But these meal and laundry machines, going back to laundry machines, these washing machines, they, the largest number of complaints... Are, are, came from the United States. Why? Because people in the United States, they were used to laundry machines, these washing machines, where water splashing around everywhere. You see it sloshing around, you see the detergent, and it tells you, now it's time for the fabric softener. You see it coming in, and, and the water turns blue, and all that kind of stuff. So they got all these, uh, all these complaints from Mila, um, uh, from, from the United States, from people saying, my, wa- my washing machine's broken. It's because they didn't read the manual. The manual tells them about the design. And the design says this is the most energy-efficient, water-efficient, most conservative washing machine. And yet, do you know that that, that washing machine, that particular one that I'm talking about, it's known because when you put, no matter what you throw in there, if you buy it new, it comes out as if it's new. Beautifully designed. If you were to change that design even slightly, if you were to alter that, if you were to violate the way it was designed even slightly, your fabric comes out a mess. That's what it is. So it's because these people, they didn't read, um, they didn't read the, uh, the manual. Now, each of our laws then, each of our laws are an expression of God's character. And as a result, because we're, we were birthed, we were created really in his image, it says a lot about our character, the design of our character. Okay, and so uh, if you really want to treasure the law, it's because we're treasuring, you're treasuring God, you're treasuring his character, you're treasuring his beauty, but really what you're treasuring is the way we were made. Your self-esteem is really begins with an honoring of God's character through his law. If you abandon the law, if you, you reject God's character, you reject his beauty, you're actually rejecting yourself, the way you were made. 
Look at the law, verses 1 to 7, the first three commandments. God's saying, I must be sensual. What he's really saying is, I'm not like other gods. I'm relational with you. I love you. Verses 8 to 11, the fourth commandment, right? We talked about the first three commandments. The fourth commandment, God delights in his work, but he's not a slave to his work. He knows when to stop. He can tell himself to stop. He's satisfied and comfortable in himself enough to know when to stop and just be satisfied in what he's done. Verse 12, the fifth commandment, God is humble. He's respectful. Verse 13, the sixth commandment, God is God of peace. Verse 14, the seventh commandment, God is faithful. He's not adulterous. Verse 15, the eighth commandment, God is serving. He's generous. He's sacrificing. He doesn't hoard and take things for himself just because, just to fulfill desire. Verse 16, the ninth commandment, God values integrity. God values consistency. God values truth. Verse 17, the last commandment, God is content. God is content with what he has. Doesn't complain. Doesn't grumble. Each of these laws reflect his character, and each of those laws define your character, the way you were designed. If you violate that law, it's going to provoke jealousy, God's jealousy, and it's going to hurt you and ultimately corrode you and destroy you. Now, so you worked all week. You worked all week, and now it's Sunday, and you have this, you finally get this chance to rest. And so it's the evening, and the football games are over, and you realize, oh my gosh, I got to I got, I got to log in. I have emails. I have a presentation tomorrow, and I don't really feel ready. And you start to do that every week. What are you doing? You're actually cheating on God. That's what he's saying here. You're cheating on God. You're putting yourself spiritually in the arms of other lovers in your life. You're supposed to be in worship. You're supposed to experience the rest that comes with God. The Israelites, they literally, it says in the text here, you let the ground rest. It's because the ground was their commerce. The land was their riches back then, their wealth. They didn't have banks back then. They have, you know, so the ground, the land was their currency. And so in this agrarian culture, they let the ground rest one out of seven days. Because even though it's, just, it's not just about them resting, in our days, that would be the laptop, right? That would be the laptop. You're letting the ground, the thing that brings your moneymaker, rest. That's what he's saying here. Amazing thing. Let's take lying, for instance. Uh, scholars agree you have to have a foundation of trust in order to experience prosperity uh, economically and socially and psychologically. So when God says, do not lie, what he's saying is lying against my nature. Lying is against my nature, but it's also against your nature. And so when you lie, you begin this process of soulful erosion. You start to disintegrate ever so slowly and subtly and, and until you know you're really just miserable in the end. You're paranoid and you're insecure. And you're constantly just working hard to cover over everything that you've done. That's what lying does. Let's take adultery. God says, be faithful. Do not commit adultery. Now, these words have nothing to do with how you feel. He doesn't mention here, unless when you feel like this, or he doesn't say that. He says, do not commit adultery. It has nothing to do with how you feel. It doesn't have anything to do with how you, what you feel like doing. Now, there are days when I don't feel like living as a Christian. I'm a pastor. There are days when I don't even feel like being a pastor. There are days like that. There are days when I want to live as a Christian, be a pastor. Before I, I really came to the gospel on a whim, on a whim, you know, as a, you know, as a, as a consultant and working, I have disposable income. On a whim, I would say, you know, I feel like flying the, my favorite team in Boston Red Sox, baseball team, spring, spring season, right? I would say on a whim, you know what? I feel like flying to Boston tomorrow. I just hop on a plane Sunday, fly out to Boston, watch a baseball game. That's what I would do. Afternoon, Fenway Park, Right? There's still days, I mean, if you've done it once, there's still days when I feel like that. 
I said, man, the Red Sox are playing the Yankees tomorrow. Do I want to watch the Red Sox against the Yankees or do I want to preach out of Leviticus? What do you think I'm going to choose? What would I rather do, right? There are days uh, when, you, you know, you feel like doing that. But did I not make a commitment to this body? Did I not make a commitment to Christ first? And as a result, when you come into Christ, you come into a body of people. Did I not make a commitment? And so, uh, even if I don't feel like participating on a certain day, it doesn't matter. That's love. That's faithfulness. I mean, take your marriage. If you only did things that you felt like doing in marriage, your marriage would fall apart, right? There are days when you don't want to be a, a husband. There are days when you don't want to be a wife. There are days when you don't want to be a mother or a father. Why do you stay committed? It's because of love. Because you love being a husband. Because you love being a wife. Because in the end, you love being a mother or a father. It has nothing to do with your personal needs being met. It's about other people's needs. Your joy is tied into their joy. So what brings them joy brings you joy. Exactly, right? There's a sense of commitment and responsibility, and that is all part of the thrill of being in that relationship. God's jealousy is insistent on your perfection, committed to making you holy, he says, making you perfect, making you beautiful. He says you are a holy people. You are a holy nation. You are set apart. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart. I've set you apart. I've made myself responsible for you because I love you. That's what he says. Why? Because only when you become perfect will you truly be happy. It makes no sense to think God is here, God's job, God is here really to meet my needs, to make me happy. Why? Because what you want right now is not going to make you happy. Now think about it. If God says, hello, I'm here to meet all your needs like a genie. I'm here to make your ne- meet your needs. That sounds great, but at what age? That's the problem. At what age? When you're 50, you're going to look back, or you do look back, and you say, You know, you're going to look back at what you wanted when you were 25. And you're going to say, that that was so foolish back then. You're going to look back and you're going to cringe. Gosh, I can't believe I wanted those things. It's going to be the same way a 25-year-old looks at themselves when they're 15. And they say, the things that I wanted, the things that I thought I needed when I was 15, the things I got into fights over, arguments over. It's the same way a 15-year-old looks at a 5-year-old. And, and, and says, gosh, the things that I wanted when I was five, it was like the end of my life if I didn't have those things. If God gave you everything that you wanted, you'd be dead. You'd be dead. If, God just, if you gave everything your child wanted when he was five, how long would he last? If you gave your child everything he wanted when he was 15, how long would they last? Maybe a little bit longer, but not much longer, right? If God gave you everything you wanted at the age of 25, at the age of 50, you'd be dead. It may take a little longer, but you'd be, you'd be a goner. If the church is just about fulfilling your current needs, your current wants, we'd all be dead. We wouldn't be loving God. If you really love somebody, you can't just say, oh, I love you as you are. It sounds beautiful. It sounds, you know, warm and fuzzy. Oh, I love you just as you are. We know that it doesn't work. There's this anger. When you really love somebody, there's an anger. There's a fighting. You're just fighting your anger. Why? Until, you want, until they become what you hope for them to be. 
until you see them flourishing, until you see them thriving. Parents, you would understand this. You get angry. It's not because you're an angry person. Well, it could be because you're an angry person. But really, you know, if you really love somebody, that, longer, that, that love cannot be dissociated from your wrath or your anger. Why? Because you hope for them. You want them to thrive. You want them to flourish. You, as a parent, want them to just experience the greater joys in life. That's what you would want for your spouse. You would want them to experience the greatest joys in their lives. And when they don't, or when they're doing something that violates what you know very well, that would would destroy, destruct, or or disintegrate that joy, it makes you angry. You're being jealous for them. That is a godly anger. The reason why you're angry is because you're full of love at times. Not all the time, but you get what I'm saying here, right? That's God. That's God for us. Now, that's the inward dimension, right? Now let's look at the outward dimension. God says, I want you to be consistent. I want you to have integrity. There's this outward consistency that comes with what's going on inwardly. Steve Jobs, great innovator, uh, founder of Apple Computer, right, Apple. Um, when he was young growing up, his father was a cabinet maker in uh, the outer outskirts of San Francisco. He, made, he built cabinets. And Steve Jobs would tag along with him and help him build these cabinets. And, uh, you know, he, he paid attention to how his dad would build these cabinets. He, his dad would say, he'd make these pristine, beautiful cabinets on the outside, but spend a tremendous amount of time on the, out, the backside that nobody will ever see. So Steve Jobs would say, you know, you could build this faster if you just ignore the backside. No one's ever going to even look at it. You're going to nail that part to the wall. Who's going to care? And his dad would say, I would know. He says, son, you have to make the inside of the cabinet just as pristine as the outside. That's what it means to have integrity. To to have integrity is to be integrated. That the outside of you is the same as the inside of you. That's what it means. And so if you look at the Ten Commandments again, what God is saying is if you have a loving relationship, a personal relationship with me, that's the first three commandments, right, then there has to be integrity on the outside that's integrated with the inside. So if you have a loving relationship with God, look at the Ten Commandments again, right, it's going to impact the way you work. That's the fourth commandment. It's going to impact the way you respect your family, authority figures. That's the fifth commandment. How you deal with just other people that you're angry at. That's the sixth commandment. Your commitment to your spouse. That's the seventh commandment. These are all outwardly things. How other people's material possessions, how you respect them, that's the Eighth Commandment. How you speak to people, what you say to people, what you think of them as you speak to them, that's your Ninth Commandment. How you look at other people's prosperity, other people's advancement, that's the Tenth Commandment. If you have a loving relationship with God, our Father, our first three commandments, then it's just going to absolutely transform the way you deal with other people. You come to realize that the, the, only, the, the only relationship that's so secure vertically, so loving vertically, that's the, that's the, uh, your relationship with God is the only way that can empower you to be this way. Lastly, we talked about the deep, it's deeper. So we said it's higher, it's more inward, it's more outward, now it's deeper. It's about intimacy. Over and over and over, he says, you are my people. I am your God. I, the Lord, your God. You will be my people. You will be my holy nation. You will be a people that belonging to me. 
He says, we're going to give ourselves to each other. That's covenant language. He says, I am at your disposal. Give yourself to me. I'm going to give myself to you. In other words, your hurts will become my hurts. My burdens are going to become your burdens. When you enter into a love relationship, whether it's marital, whether it's a very, very close friendship, you know a part of your life is not your own. Your life is just not your own. You can't just live any way you want anymore, the way you used to live. In a sense, you know, you're giving up your life because the love goes deeper. Before I got married, I ate however I wanted. I slept whenever I wanted, wherever I wanted, I suppose. I spent money the way that I wanted. When you love somebody, there's this desire to give, you want to give up those old things. You want to start to do, you start to think about, you start to make decisions and you can't dissociate what you want from the, the good for the other person. So even if you really want something, in your heart you know, you get stuck because you start to think about this person that you love and you know, I just can't do that. That's what love is. It makes you want to do things for the other person. You, it doesn't even feel like obeying. There's no obeying. There's no, there's no law. I mean, inherently there's some conversion, a sense of the law, but it's not, there's a love that shrouds that law that makes that law concrete in your heart, in your life. And it's because your happiness is wrapped up in the happiness and the joy of the other person. And God says, that's how I want you to be able to relate to me. Intimate, deep. In this passage, from chapters 19 to 24, you see God bringing his, the elders of Moses into a meal. It's very, you know, God is sitting and dining with these people. What does that mean? He's feeding these people. He's nurturing these people with a meal because back then meals were the most intimate of affairs. In this agrarian society, if you kill an animal, in an agrarian society, animals were incredibly valuable. To be able to kill an animal and provide it in a meal, that person had to mean something very, very important to you. To invite them into your home, into your private quarters, and to be able to feed them was an intimate act. We do that. We think that way now. To invite somebody over, you have to feel comfortable with them on a Saturday night, right? Very comfortable with them. And because it's deeper, because it's intimate, what hurts us grieves God. What, you know, what, the things that we violate, God knows it's going to hurt us, and it grieves him. It makes him angry. He says, I'm jealous for you. Now, we talked about then why. He says that jealousy, that's the reason why we have the law. We talked about what it is. We looked at the law and all the different components, all the different dimensions. How do you obey it? How do you actually obey it? Some people say, well, you just obey it. Just do it. <laughs> It's a lot more nuanced than that. The complexity of sin getting in the way creates tremendous problems for us to obey. Because the law is relational, when sin, when we sin, we're not just breaking a rule. We're not just breaking the rules of the king. God is the king. He gives us a set of laws. We're not just breaking these laws. We're breaking his heart because the relationship is founded on love. It's like adultery. Sin is a form of adultery. And it's why the Bible treats adultery as a capital offense. Because really, by committing adultery with God, you're actually destroying yourself, so to speak. And it's why in verses 18 to 21 now, when the people saw this, when they heard this, when they heard God, they saw, they saw this visual representation of God, and, and they trembled at this distance because they knew we're at a distance, we need to stay away. 
We're going to be consumed if we come closer because we can't, we can't live up to the law. There's this tremendous weight of the law on our shoulders. We, they knew they needed somebody to go on their behalf. They asked Moses, will you go on our behalf? And it says, beautiful verse, that last verse, Moses entered into the thick darkness, this thick cloud, this thick darkness. Moses entered in. Moses entered into the death. Moses entered into the fatal zone. That's what it says here. Sin creates this cosmic gap, this distance between us and God, because all we ever do is break his heart. That's all we do. We always have these God. You know, commandment number one, we always have things that are more important to us than God. Look at your schedule. Just pull out your calendar. It'll show you. Think about how many people you talk to in a day. Think about the content of those conversations. You'll see it. Think about all the things that we do in a given day. Take the last hour before we got to church, even while you're at church, all the things you thought about. All we ever do is break God's heart. And the Bible says the people are at a distance. They're afraid. They know that there's a distance. They know that they need to be cast off. They know that if they violate things further, they will be cut off. They'll be cast out. How does God keep a relationship with his people who are constantly trampling on his heart? And we see this in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And why? What was the purpose? What was the whole purpose and the reason why Jesus loved his church? To make her holy, cleansing her, presenting her as radiant, without stain, without blemish. Who is the wife here? It's the church. It's us. It's you. It's me. It's the church. There's love, the love that's emphasized in that passage in Ephesians 5 is the love of Christ. Jesus is characterized with a jealous love. Paul says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, what he said, what Jesus said was, I am at your disposal, the church's disposal. And what do we do with him? We disposed him. We, we disposed of him. Human jealousy says this, you know, I need to control this person. Why? I need to control everything that person thinks and does. Why? Because it's serving myself. It serves the self because I'm insecure, because I have pride, because I have an ego. I need to protect myself. And so what happens is when they violate your love, what happens is your love gets replaced with anger. We all know jealous wives. We all know jealous husbands in our lives. And, you know, when we look at them from a distance, we say, oh, they're absolutely crazy. That person's crazy. Why? Because human love, you see the corrosion. You can sometimes see the corrosion on the outside. It kills the lover. It kills the actual love itself. But God's love, we talked with Tim Keller, right? God's love stays love. It doesn't change. There's anger because of the love. And so, you know, even when, you're, even when he's angry, God says, I'm still going to die for you. Because of my anger, I need to die for you. Even if you reject me, even if you're not thankful for me, even if you're running from me, even if you're just uh, absolutely distant from me, you know, the gospel solves the problem of our disobedience. Why? Because, you know, God's love gets angry, but what does he do? He takes on the wrath. The cross is a picture of God, God's anger, and yet God's swallowing up that anger. It's a picture of God's jealousy, his wrathful jealousy, but then swallowed up by his love. That's what the cross is. On the cross, Jesus took the penalty. Jesus took the penalty that we deserved so that we can have the righteousness, so that we can have the glory, 
so we can have the love and the access to God that he deserved. Jesus took the penalty of our lives. He received the wrath of God on the cross. You know, it says God's jealousy is a love that fights for you. And that truth is, is what's going that truth is what's going to fulfill the deepest longings of our hearts. At the heart, the reason why we work so hard to please other people, to please our bosses, to please our spouses, to please our children, to please our parents, to please somebody, anybody who's popular in our lives, it's because we, everybody knows it's a cosmic thing. We need somebody on the outside of us to tell us, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that I have you. You are absolutely beautiful. You are worthy. I'll never let you go. I'm going to fight for you until the end. How do you know? How do you know that God is going to do that? Because if you know that it's God, God, your creator, your lover, the everlasting, the eternal, the king who says, I'm going to fight for you to the end. If you know that, that is the fulfillment of the deepest longings of our souls. No one has ever had a relationship with God the way Jesus Christ had a relationship with God. Jesus' love with God is, is higher, more inward, more outward, and deeper than anybody else on earth. Incredibly intimate, so intimate, Jesus says, I and we are one. He and I, I and him. Jesus, is, Jesus Christ fulfilled the entire law as a result because on the inside and the outside, there was absolute consistency. Because God the Father was in him, he was absolutely consistent. He fulfilled the law and obeyed the law perfectly. He always honored his Father. He was always faithful. He never sinned, never adulterous in his love for God. Always generous, always sacrificing, always loving truth, always content, even though he was homeless. And yet on the cross, he was rejected. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he means is he says, I'm God's son, and yet I've been disowned. I am cursed. God has rejected me, and so I've been cut off. This is my center. God is my priority, and yet he has cut himself off from me, and as a result, I am disintegrating. I am corroding. Jesus Christ was crushed by the weight of our sins. The wrath of God just thrown wave after wave on him. God's loving anger crushing Jesus, pulverizing him. Why? Why? So that we could have the warmth of his embrace. So that we could be loved by God. Jesus was crushed to pieces. Why? He was consumed by the fire of God, by the wrath of God. Why? So we could have intimacy with God. He was cut off so that we could be intimate with God. He was crushed by the way of sin. Why? So that we could be shaped by his love. God said, I am a jealous God. I'm going to do whatever I can to bring you back for your sake. That's his love. So you could be my, my treasure. You have to let that truth shape you. And if it does, the whole truth, not just the good parts, but the tough parts, the whole truth, you can't just pick and choose the parts you want to believe. You've got to take the whole truth because it all points to his love. The law points to his love. It's going to shape you. Now, if you try to earn God's love by just obeying the law, and I'm just going to try hard, you're going to get tired. You're going to mess up. You're going to feel hopeless and helpless. You're going to be bitter. You're going to to feel crushed. You're going to be crushed by the weight of sin. Your soul will start to disintegrate. You're going to start to judge other people who you feel like are doing worse than you. Because you can't keep up. You know that you yourself are inadequate, and so you have to look at people who are more inadequate to you. You're going to step all over people. You're going to somehow turn to other things and use those things to advance you. That's what you're going to do. 
try to run from the law, on the other hand, you're going to be entangled by the things that you love, by the things that you desire. You're going to be like that five-year-old saying, I can't live without this thing in my life. You're going to be enslaved. And the moment you're born, we're going to be enslaved by things that we desire. We're going to be entangled by them. You're going to start to corrode. Your soul is going to start to disintegrate. But if you trust in the person and work of Christ, embrace all the truths, being shaped by them, that will give you ultimate freedom. That will give you ultimate joy. You're going to be like a fish in water. A fish in water is not going to sit there and say, man, those guys, they get to breathe. They don't do that. A fish in water is marvelous, is magnificent when it's living according to its design. That's what it's doing. You're going to experience real freedom. Don't live like a man in a spacesuit out in outer space, gasping for air, living this claustrophobic spiritual life, this cold spiritual life. There's nothingness. There's a vacuum out there. No sound, no love. Live the way you were designed to live, by grace alone. And you're going to experience real options and real freedom and real potential and real joy. That's the purpose of the law. God is a jealous God, jealous for you, jealous to fight for you so you will flourish and thrive like a fish in water, like a bird out in the air. Will you live the way you were designed Will you reflect on that and know that? Be intimate with God in that way. You can only do it with a relationship with him. Will you do that? Let's pray.